How many of you have been watching TV? Yeah. yeah. It'll depress you, I'm telling you. But uh, I think my daughter discovered yesterday that my granddaughter was watching way too much TV. They were stopping by the ATM, and uh, all of a sudden she starts hollering, Give me cash! Give me cash! And my daughter said, Why do you need cash? She said, Because it feels good in my hands! couldn't figure out where this stuff was coming from until they asked this question. Well, why do you need cash? To which her answer was, somebody burned down my she shed. (laughs) To which my daughter said, we are not watching that much TV anymore. Uh, How old is she? Five. A scary five-year-old, even. Listen, before we get started, I need to say this, because otherwise I'll get carried away and I'll forget what I'm doing. Uh, I had Susan put together this, this little sheet here, and it's just the events of Jesus' final week. It kind of lays them out Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Might be helpful for you, might not. I'm going to put some of them up here, and when we're done, you can come and grab one if, you're, if you want to. Hopefully, it'll fit in your Bible and... You can kind of track with us as we go. So last week, we looked at these things here. I think we did. Hold on just a minute. Did I escape out of that? Yeah, sorry, I punched the wrong button. You give me more than one button, and I'm a mess. Fire back up for me, if you would. There we go. Thank you very, very much. I'll try to get the right button. Yeah. We went over these things last week. Uh, doesn't look like we got very far, but we covered a lot. So we started with uh, the Sanhedrin plots against Jesus and Lazarus. We're, we, are, we got Jesus into Jerusalem last week, and it's been a long time coming, but we finally got him into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. But before he gets there, there's some plotting going on. He's just outside of Jerusalem. He and this massive crowd that's following him, it's a circus. There's noise, there's chaos, and they're moving to Jerusalem. And, of course, word gets out that Jesus is on the way. And the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, the, uh, the kind of the religious supreme court, if you will, starts plotting. And... and They're plotting because Jesus' fame is growing and growing and growing. Uh, It's Passover week. Remember, Passover was one of three feasts where every Jew, no matter where you lived, had to travel back to Jerusalem and be a part of the feast. And so this is what's happening. So Jerusalem is full of people, has full of -of out-of-towners. You know, think of Master's Week, Augusta and Master's Week. This is what Jerusalem is like. And then the Sanhedrin get word that Jesus is moving in. And here's the problem. There's a lot of -of out-of-towners that have never seen a dead man walking. Lazarus. You know, now the people that lived in the Jerusalem area would have seen Lazarus. They would have known that. 
But so now you have this big crowd that's following Jesus into Jerusalem, and now all the out-of-towners hear about it, and they want to come and see Jesus, and they're hoping to get a glimpse of Lazarus too, and the crowd's just just getting bigger and bigger. And, And here's the problem, at least for the Sanhedrin. Because of the miracles that Jesus has been doing, because he raises Lazarus from the dead, the people begin to think this guy has enough power to actually be the Messiah. This guy has enough power that he probably can come in and kick the Romans out. This could be it. This could be the thing we have been praying for for hundreds of years. And so everybody's getting excited. Uh, But the religious leaders were not happy about this. They were not happy about this at all because of the attention Jesus was gaining. So they begin to say, we need to do something about Jesus. But you can't do something about Jesus as long as Lazarus is around because Lazarus is the token poster boy for who Jesus is. He raised Lazarus from the dead. How are you going to go against Jesus when you got a dead man walking right beside him? So they decide that they've got to not only get rid of Jesus, they've got to get rid of Lazarus too, which seems like a rotten turn of events. If you died once and then you're brought back to life and now they're trying to kill you again, that just seems like bad karma or something. But this is what's happening as he's coming into Jerusalem. So when he enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, here's what happens. Crowds are at critical mass. They're beginning to go down the valley and getting ready to come up to Jerusalem. Jesus sends his disciples into a village to find a donkey for him to ride on. He tells them very specifically, look, you're going to go into this village. When you go in, you're going to find this colt, this foal of a donkey, never been ridden on before. You're going to untie that donkey. When you do, the owner's going to say, hey, what are you doing? And here's what you're going to tell them. And then he's going to let the donkey go. And it happens just like Jesus said it would. They bring the donkey back to Jesus. They spread their cloaks on top of the donkey. They put Jesus on top of it. And he starts to ride into Jerusalem. Now, they did not do this because Jesus all of a sudden got tired and couldn't make the rest of the trip into Jerusalem. Remember, for three years, he has walked everywhere. They did this because this was part of a messianic prophecy. It was a part of messianic prophecy. And, uh, and Jesus was fulfilling that. It was spoken of in, in Psalm 118. And so by Jesus saying, hey, go get this, bring this here, he is making a very clear statement about who he is as he comes into Jerusalem. Because the Messiah was supposed to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, so it is, it is a very bold statement to make. And when he does it, of course, the crowds ramp up even more. Because they're even more convinced that this is the Messiah. And so you have all of this conglomeration of people in Jerusalem. Now, some of them are there and excited because they've seen and heard about the miracles and they're hoping to see more miracles. And they're they're there for the show. They're hoping they can get a glimpse of something they may never, ever see again. A miracle. Some of them are there because they really do believe that Jesus is that political messiah that they've been hoping for and waiting for. He's going to come in, he's going to kick out the Romans and give rule and reign back to the Jews and make Jerusalem the capital city again. But some of them there are the religious leaders and they're just jealous 
of all the attention that Jesus is getting, and they think Jesus is leading the people astray, so now they're plotting for how they can kill him. So Jerusalem becomes this powder keg. It becomes this city in which everyone's on edge for one reason or another. It's like this, you could tip it and it could go in any direction. Which makes it even worse for the people because the Romans do not like chaos. They want their cities that they rule over to be calm and to be peaceful and to be organized. And they don't like that kind of thing. And this is one thing the religious leaders knew that if things get too out of hand, the Romans are just going to come in and squelch it. And the religious leaders still had some ruling ability. Even though the Romans were over them, the Romans had granted them some rule and reign over the people. They just could not execute. And so they're afraid, okay, if the Romans have to come in and squelch this, then we're going to lose our power too. So it's a very dicey situation for everyone. So the religious leaders come up to Jesus and basically say, because all the people are praising God and shouting Hosanna, and, and they come up and say, get them to be quiet. Silence this crowd. And Jesus basically says, you know, if I, even if I could, then the very rocks would cry out. Which was Jesus' way of saying, you cannot silence truth. It will eventually come out. And so he refuses to silence the crowd. They're even more irritated. And, and so then we get to the end of the day. And we end up with Jesus, well not the end of the day, but we end up with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Now, he weeps over Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. One, the, the Jews have no idea who is in their midst. Not only do, do they not know who Jesus really is, they have no clue what it's going to take to buy their spiritual freedom. They have no idea that God has sent his very son into their midst, and that son would be executed in one of the most gruesome ways possible. They don't have a clue, and he weeps over their ignorance, if you will. But he also weeps because he knows in a short 40 years from that time, Jerusalem will be leveled. The Romans will come in and just wipe it out, not leave one stone on top of another, and it it just will never be the same. And so he's weeping over Jerusalem for that. And then, we, that's as far as we got, we did these takeaways. Sometimes your best work for God can paint the biggest target on your back. You just got to get used to that. Sometimes your best work for God, somebody's going to paint a target on your back because of that. Case in point, Lazarus. Doesn't get much bigger and better than raising someone from the dead. And that was one of the main reasons that the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to kill him. So, who was it that said, no good, in, no good deed goes unpunished? You've got to be ready for that. Another takeaway that we had was this one. You can't stop truth. I know it seems like it. If you watch the news, and it feels like truth just gets trampled on and buried and put away. But you can't. You can try to stop it. You can uh, deny it. You can try to spin it, cover it up. You can try to do all of those things. But eventually, truth wins out. And this is what Jesus is saying when he said, even if I could silence these people, the rocks would cry out. Truth comes out. You may have to wait for it to Sometimes you may not even get to see it happen. 
but truth will come out. Oftentimes, the best seeds we plant don't bloom until long after we're gone, but they will bloom. And so you can't silence truth. Eventually, truth wins out. Why? Because we need it. Truth is what sets us free. All right, another takeaway. Sometimes we're willing to settle for less than what God really wants to give us. Sometimes we're willing to settle for less. I go back and look at my prayer life, and if God had answered some of my prayers, it would have not been good, or at least as good as it turned out to be when he didn't, or at least when he said no. The Pharisees, the, not the Pharisees, the Jews, the people, the citizens of Jerusalem, they wanted a political Messiah. And, and what they wanted was not as good as what God wanted to give them. They wanted someone who would set them free politically, and God wanted to set them free eternally and spiritually. A political Messiah would have only lasted a few years. Salvation lasts for eternity. And so be careful when you get angry or upset that God didn't give you what you wanted. It may be because you're under-asking it may be because you're asking for a lot less than what he's trying to give you to start with. And it may be that in hindsight, you'll look back and say, I'm so glad he didn't give me what I asked for because this is so much better. All right, one more takeaway. Be willing to let God's agenda override yours, which is really hard for us. But that was the problem with Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They had an agenda, and Jesus was overriding that agenda, and they could not swallow it. They could not accept it. But I can tell you, if it comes down between your agenda and God's agenda, God's agenda is going to win, with or without you. It just will. He can carry out his agenda. The wonderful thing about the sovereignty of God is it doesn't have to go the way he wants it to, and it still goes the way he wants it to. I mean, if you think about it, that sovereignty, we think God is so sovereign he should be able to snap his hands or snap his fingers and make this go away or snap his fingers and make... That's not sovereignty. That's a power trip. Sovereignty is when I refuse him, rebel against him, do something completely different, and what he wants still works out. That's sovereignty. And so, don't try to override his will because you can. His agenda will override yours. All right? So, let's get on to something new tonight. Let's look at this. Excuse me. Jesus curses a fig tree and cleanses the temple. These are interesting passages. We've read them. Many of us have read them a lot in our life and... Uh, but we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. These two events, they're very closely related in Scripture. Uh, but each gospel writer handles them a little bit differently. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus cleanses the temple on the first day he arrives at Jerusalem. And that he curses the fig tree the next morning and it immediately withers. So that's Matthew's take on it. The first day he's in Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. The next morning, he curses the fig tree and immediately it withers. Now, Mark tells us that both of these events take place on the same day. 
that he curses the fig tree on the way back into Jerusalem, and then he cleanses the temple. And Luke only mentions, mentions cleansing the temple. He doesn't mention the fig tree. So they, they vary a little bit on what they're focusing on and kind of their chronology. We're going to look at it as recorded in Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Now according to Mark, this is going, the, what happens on the first day when Jesus enters Jerusalem, all right? So Mark chapter 11, look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, let's stop right there. So he enters Jerusalem, riding on the donkey. Everybody's shouting his praise. He has this little interchange with the Sanhedrin. And then that, it, according to Mark, towards the end of the day, he goes into the temple. He looks around, but supposedly it's late. So he heads out and goes to Bethany. Look at verse 12. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. I think it's interesting that the Son of God got hungry. He was hungry. We never think about that. We never think, we know that God, Jesus was fully God and fully man. We know that, but we never think about what that means. Can you imagine being God you've never wanted for anything ever? You've never been hungry. You've never been in want. You've never been everything. And now you're hungry. I wonder what that was like. He goes on to say, and when he came to it, the fig tree, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so he goes in, he looks, uh, goes into the temple the, e the evening before, looks around, decides it's late, goes back to Bethany. The next morning, he's headed back to Jerusalem. He's hungry, sees this fig tree, he moves over to the fig tree, there's no figs on it. He curses that fig tree, the disciples are hearing it, and he goes away. Now this, I'm just going to be honest with you, every time I read this, or at least up until recently when I was doing some more study, every time I would read this, it sounds like a cheap parlor trick. Seems like a cheap abuse of power. You know, the Son of God is hungry and he doesn't find any figs, so he curses the fig tree. I mean, that just sounds like a, a, a cheap abuse of power. But we're going to see that he's really, there's really a reason behind it. He does that not just to flex his muscles, not just because he's impulsive. He does it because he's going to use it to teach a lesson to them. But before they can learn what the lesson is, Mark puts the cursing of the fig tree on hold. He pauses it. And he moves on to the cleansing of the temple. So look at verse 15. Mark 11 and starting in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money chamber changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My father's house or my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Okay, now we have said that the Jews were traveling from all over, some from very, very far away. And when you came to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was expected that you offer up a sacrifice. At, you know, and depending upon your circumstances, your lot in life, et cetera, et cetera, would depend upon what sacrifice you offered. But you had to offer a sacrifice. Now, some of the people were coming from such a long distance that rather than try to bring an animal, and remember the animal had to be without spot and blemish, so rather than try to bring that animal that far away, they would just purchase their sacrificial animal when they got there. And so this is kind of the environment that they're talking about. Now, the reference to the money changers is a reference to currency exchange. And here's how that worked. If you did any business in the temple, it had to be with a certain type of coin. It had to be with the temple coinage. Uh, and that coin was called the Tyrian, uh, excuse me, the Tyrian shekel. So the, the temple business was carried out with that coinage, which meant that if you were going to buy a sacrificial animal, you had to buy it with that coinage. Well, that was not a common coinage that was used. It was just used in the temple. So people traveling in to buy animals would have to exchange their money for temple coinage so that they could then buy the animal. I mean, think of traveling overseas when you have to exchange your currency for their currency and vice versa. This is what's going on at the tables. Now, the question is, why is he so angry with this? I mean, he's throwing stuff. That's angry. Why? It's supposed to be a house of worship. So, was he saying, you shouldn't be doing this in the temple? What else? They were profiting. Okay. Any other ideas? They were abusing people. They were abusing people. How so? If you have to come to Jerusalem and you have to make a sacrifice, that's great. But now you make a sacrifice. So I'm going to charge you so much to exchange your money. I'll bet you I'll let you odds. They were, they were using them. They, so, they, were, they were doing usury for the exchange. So the idea is that they were, uh, they were profiteering. They were price, price hiking on them. Yeah, they were jacking the price up. And it could be. I mean, all of those things. There's another thing where in Zechariah 14, 21, there is this prophecy that says there will be no traitors in the house of the Lord when his sovereignty comes. That's in Zechariah. Well, so when Jesus walks into the temple, the sovereignty of the Lord has come into it. So all of these, we don't know for sure. It's a question I can't give you an absolute answer for. Although... The price gouging is probably pretty close because that's why Jesus refers to them as robbers. Now, I, again, Jesus is saying, hey, the temple is supposed to be for the master and not market. All right. So first and foremost, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place of communion with God. It's supposed to be a place of focusing on him. So the, putting the market in there just kind of blew all of that. So that's, that's a big grievance. But when he calls them a den of robbers, it's probable that they were price gouging and they were jacking up the price on people. We don't know, but we do know this. Whatever it was made him mad. You know, and I, I can't picture this. Remember the, some of you will remember these. Remember the old, old pictures of Jesus 
You know, you've seen them. It's this iconic picture of Jesus, and the, it's just really soft, and there's like this halo on him, and, and I cannot measure that up against this because he's flipping tables. If, if somebody came in here and started doing that right now, flipping your tables over, you would think he was mad. Not just angry mad, but mad mad. And so this is what's happening. And, and it, he was not happy, but neither were the priests, as you can imagine. Look at verse 18 of Mark 11. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. When evening came, he went out of the city. Uh, so they were not happy about this either. According to the passage, why were the religious leaders seeking to destroy him? Just look in those verses. They feared him. What did they fear about him? Why did they fear him? That's right. The crowd was turning to him in droves. And when they turned to him, who are they turning away from? The religious leaders. And they feared his influence. They feared his following. They feared the power that, that he was amassing. Uh, their agenda was being superseded by Jesus. We're back to the agenda thing. Their agenda got trumped by Jesus's, and they did not like it. And, and, and all through the readings here, you've got to hear the tension in Jerusalem is just creeping up and creeping up and elevating and elevating. It's getting to be hostile in Jerusalem. And speaking of the people turning to Jesus, now non-Jews are asking about him. Look at this. The Greeks start asking to see Jesus. We're going to flip over to John because this is the only place you find this account. It's in John chapter 21. Now remember, we're doing a harmony of the Gospels as best we can or as best as scholars can. Not me, but as best as scholars can. We're trying to follow the life of Jesus in chronological order and take all these events kind of as they happen. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he made Bible pages stick together. I just don't get it. I'm supposed to be wanting to be in your word, and why would you make the pages stick together? Because I can't get to them. How many of you lick your fingers when you're trying to change pages? I just never could do that. Not because I'm hypersensitive about germs. I just don't want to get the pages wet. That just did not seem like a good idea to me. That has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. Uh, and that reference cannot be right. No wonder the pages were sticking. That's not where I'm supposed to be. Did I have the wrong? 12, excuse me, John 12. It's been a long day, folks. John 12. <laughs> yeah, John 21 almost has us through the Gospels, right? John 12. This is an interesting passage. It's kind of thrown in here in the middle, and 
And you really have to dig in to figure out how it fits and how it makes sense. Look at John 12, starting in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Remember, there were people from everywhere in Jerusalem. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's a weird way to answer a question. Hey, somebody here wants to see you. And then all of a sudden he goes off into this speech about the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servants also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Seems like a weird way to answer a question about somebody wanting to see you. Uh, it's just like way out of left field. You know, if you, if, it's one of those things when I used to ask my daughters questions, and they would go off on this tangent, and by the time they were done, I'm going, what? That has nothing to do with what I ask you. This seems like this is what's going on. Let's back up and walk through it. So there are these Greeks worshiping in Jerusalem on that day. Now, these Greeks were not Jews. They were non-Jewish people, but they were believers in God and evidently close enough believers that they were allowed into the temple. And they sought out one of the disciples, Philip, to see if they could meet Jesus. And the disciples funnel this word back to Jesus. Now, Jesus' response is to begin to talk about how his hour had come. You know, at first thought, it sounds like, okay, if your hour's come, okay, maybe he just doesn't want to see them. Maybe that's what he's getting at. He starts talking about a grain of wheat isn't fruitful unless it dies, and and how whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose his earthly life will gain eternal life. And he goes into all of this speech. Excuse me, the pollen is getting me, I think. Why would the Greeks requesting to see Jesus prompt this kind of speech from Jesus? I mean, we really, it's, it's really easy to skip over this because it just doesn't make sense, so let's just move on. But let's see if we can figure it out. Why this kind of response to somebody who says, hey, there's some Greeks here that want to see you. Yeah, there is a place where it says that he was sent first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Or, and Paul especially was that way. Paul, that's how he carried out his ministry early. I don't blame me. I wouldn't try to answer this one either. Uh, but, but let's dig in a little bit. Because the fact that non-Jews were coming to Jesus, that's very affirming to his mission. Remember, we're told in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Okay, and up until this time, it's been predominantly just the Jews that have any interest in him. Some of the Samarians, the Samaritans, excuse me, have some interest in him, but they are connected to the Jews, even though the Jews didn't want to admit it. But but it pretty much kind of stayed in the family. 
until now, but now Greeks are coming to him. This is part of his mission. This is part of his goal. And because the Jewish nation had not been fruitful beyond their own borders. But all of a sudden, here are these Greeks beyond the borders that want to know about the Messiah. And, and Jesus sees this as the turning point. His mission was to be fruitful and to bring all people to himself. That was the mission for the Jews. When God calls Abraham, he tells Abraham he's going to be a blessing to the nations, plural, all of them. And, and so this was always the call. But now it's happening. And, and this is what Jesus is referring to. The mission of Jesus will always put people ahead of projects or perceptions or preferences. It'll always do that. And, and so this is what it means when he starts talking about a grain of wheat falls to the earth but it, and dies, but it becomes fruitful. He's talking about himself. The whole purpose of this little speech here is about being fruitful. The, the nation of Israel is often referred to as either a vine or a fig tree. The purpose is those things produce fruit that feed others. And that's what the nation of Israel is supposed to do. And so now Jesus hears, non-Jews are coming to me. It's time to be fruitful. And he goes in to talk about his hour has come. And a grain of wheat, meaning himself, is going to fall to the ground and die, but it's going to bring fruit. And then he turns to his disciples and says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's saying, guys, this is how you be fruitful. This is how you bring others besides yourselves into the kingdom. Now this speech makes a lot more sense. This, this leads Jesus now, as he begins to think in these terms, it leads him to what's before him. Look in that same chapter, John 12, look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. Let's stop right there. What strikes you, if anything, about this passage? Just two and a verse and a half. What strikes you? How hard he struggled. There's some raw honesty in this passage. Uh, it shows that Jesus wrestled with what he was being asked to do. Remember, he's fully God, but he's fully man. He's fully human. That's the incarnation. And, and this gets played out. Why would, I mean, if I'm, trying to, if I'm trying to build up the guy I'm following, I wouldn't write this in here. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't write this in here. But... The guy we're following has been tempted in every way such as we have, yet without sin. 
according to Scripture. So there's this raw honesty about him wrestling with being asked to do something he didn't want to do, realizing that there is a decision before him, seeking a way out of it or obey what's asked of him. That's the decision. Does that not sound like real life to you? Because it seems like real life to me, like daily. And I love the fact that, that the Holy Spirit, through this gospel writer, was willing to be that honest. And so Jesus settles the decision by going back to his purpose. This is so important. Get it. It says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this, what? Purpose. I have come to this hour. So he settles the decision by returning to the purpose. And when he returns to his purpose, then that makes the decision for him. You know the reason why, I started to say you and I, but I'll just speak for myself. The reason I have so much trouble sometimes making decisions is because I'm not making decisions with a purpose in mind. Or I'm like the Pharisees and I'm making decisions for my purpose. Which hardly ever goes well, by the way. And, and, and so we wander and meander through life going this way and that way and taking this road and then getting sidetracked and taking this road and then getting off track and then getting back on track. We do that because we don't keep the purpose in front of us. And as believers... The purpose is, go back to the verses before it, to be fruitful. That's the purpose. The purpose is not to be fruitful so I have more. The purpose is to be fruitful so the kingdom has more. More what? More people. And so when Jesus gets the purpose in front of him, he says, Father, glorify your name. This is key for us. Uh, it leads him to seek God's glory instead of his own comfort. Now after that, there's this sound which the crowd interprets as thunder. But Jesus hears his father's affirmation in that. Which again is, is interesting that the affirmation doesn't come until after the decision is made. Don't you wish it was the other way around? And unfortunately, I think this is the world that we live in now. We want to give everybody affirmation whether they've done anything or not. Whether they've made the decision or not. And here, Jesus struggles, refocuses on the purpose, makes the decision, and then the Father affirms. And uh, the people didn't hear that. They just heard thunder. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how critical the time is and, and, and the eternal nature of that particular point in time, how he would be crucified, how Satan would be cast out, and, and thus how important it is for us to walk in the light. He goes on and talks about those things. But when the day is over, once again, he leaves Jerusalem. Jesus did not spend a night, that last week of his life, he did not spend a night in Jerusalem until the night he was arrested. And he goes back out of Jerusalem. Now, let's see, do I, I don't know if I've got time to go any further than that. Now we need to. All right, 
So he goes out of Jerusalem. We get to the next morning. Jesus is heading back into Jerusalem. By this time, everyone's forgot about the fig tree. But on this morning, the story now comes back around. So go back to Mark chapter 11. Make me quit turning back and forth. Mark chapter 11. The, the fig tree thing comes back around. Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Completely. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay, let's stop for a second. They're headed back to Jerusalem. They pass the fig tree. Jesus had cursed the day before. And remember, the disciples had heard him do this, and they were amazed that it was withered completely down to the roots. And they asked Jesus about the withered fig tree, and Jesus responds with words that are often misunderstood. So let's look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. For therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received. That, excuse me, that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that the Father who also is in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. Now, when you casually read this passage, here's what it sounds like. It sounds like that God is saying that he will give you anything you want as long as you believe hard enough. Is that what it's saying? I mean, it's pretty plain. So is that what he's saying? Ah, we have a no in the front row. Thank you. No. How do we know that, though? Sounds like the prosperity gospel. There was no prosperity gospel at that time. We had to get to this time to put a label on it. No, think about it. How do you know it? it think about this. In just a few days, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to ask the Father to let this cup pass from him. Now, can you think of anybody that has more faith than Jesus? More belief in the Father than Jesus. More power to do it than Jesus. And it doesn't happen. So it must not be linked to if you just believe hard enough. Mm. So there's some qualifiers in here that, that are not really plain in the passage, if you, if you will. Um, so let's look closer at the passage. The context of the passage has to do with Jesus entering Jerusalem and dealing with the people. Remember, always go back to the context. And the context of this week is Jesus is 
one last time trying to deal with the Jewish people. And if you'll note, the fig tree, like I said before, is often used as a symbol of the nation of Israel. It's often used as a symbol of the nation. So the withering of the fig tree, it's not a magic trick. It's not meant to be a magic trick. It's a symbolic statement of Israel's failure to bring forth fruit. That's what this fig tree is about. Other people in the nations around them, Israel failed. The Jewish people failed to bring them. So they were not fruitful. So Jesus' symbolism sets the stage for reaching the world in a different way. Okay? He's, he's getting them outside the box, if you will. And so this is why the disciples are amazed that what's happened to the tree. Jesus points to the mountain, and it's his way of saying, guys, you have to get out of the box. You have to get out of the box. We're going to do it differently. We're going to do it differently. Now, look at the qualifiers, because I talked about qualifier. Look at the qualifiers. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask, here's the first one, in prayer. Now, we can say, okay, so I just pray for what I want, but do not cheapen prayer. Prayer is not a grocery list. You know, I mean, it is so great that Kroger and Walmart, now you can like call in or online your order and they'll just deliver it to you. This is not it. All right? Prayer is communion. It's relating. It's tuning your heart to God's. It's hearing from him so that you can be shaped into his image. And so, it's this context in which you ask. Now, look at the next qualifier. Whoever asks, whatever you ask in prayer, first one, believe that you have received it. Okay, so where prayer aligns our desires with his. We're in communion with him in prayer. We become more like him. Our desires become his. Belief aligns our behaviors with his. Because we act on what we believe. You know, if, if you don't believe the chair is going to hold you up, you're not going to sit in the chair. You act upon your beliefs. So prayer aligns our desires with his. Belief aligns our behaviors with his. And there's one more thing, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So forgiveness this willingness to forgive, it aligns our heart with his. So, Jesus is saying, when your, head, when your desires are aligned with mine, and your behaviors are aligned with mine, and your heart is aligned with mine, then yeah, you're probably going to ask for the right stuff, and I'm going to deliver it. And remember, what is the right stuff? Being fruitful for the kingdom. That's the right stuff. You will never, ever be denied when you pray that God make me fruitful for, you, for your kingdom. Not mine, but yours. He will always answer that prayer in the affirmative. So Jesus is not talking about ask for whatever you want in your flesh and you get it. He's talking about the things related to promoting the kingdom of God. Now, one last thing and then we'll do some takeaways. That was, we ended in verse 25. If you have the ESV, 
you go immediately from verse 25 to verse 27. Somebody stole your verse 26. Now, some of you have versions that have a verse 26 in it. So it's kind of like leap year for you. You got an extra one. And, and really all that means is scholars have, have determined that verse 26 was not in the earliest manuscripts. And because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, their assumption is it was added in later. And so that's why textually they remove it. But your, if, your, if your Bible's missing a verse 26, you probably have a footnote down at the bottom to tell you where it went and why it's gone. So just thought I'd deal with that. It has nothing to do with the big matters we've been talking about, but just in case you're wondering, all right? All right, we need to do some takeaways. We'll talk about this next week. Oh, we talked about that then. Excuse me, I'm behind. We'll talk about this week, next week. The Sanhedrin questioned Jesus' authority again. And then we'll talk about the parable of two vineyard workers and the parable of the vineyard owner. We will hit those next week. Let's see if we can do some takeaways, though, now. Here's the first one. The mission of Jesus will always be to put people ahead of projects and personal desires. The question is, can that be said of you and I? And too often, at least for me, probably I fail in that way. Uh, now, if I, I'll put my personal desires first, and when they keep coming up wrong, and I keep butting my head and bloody in my knuckles, and, and things keep going south, then I'll back up and go, okay, maybe I got this wrong. Start with the purposes of God. And then see, I mean, isn't it so easy to say, hey, I know how this should go, and this is how I want, this would be so good. So then we start praying and asking God to bless our purpose. You know, just make it so. Rather than starting with his, his purpose, we start with ours and ask for the blessing. It's backwards. So, the mission of God, make sure it comes first. Next one. When you find yourself wrestling with what God wants you to do, you need to make decisions based upon his purpose rather than your plan. Focusing on God's purpose can help you push through your problem. That's a big statement, and, and I know that's way easier said than done. I don't, I, I don't want to make, misinterpret that as it being easy, because it's not. But focusing on God's purpose can help you push through your problems. That's what Jesus does when he says, you know, I want to pray for the Father to take this from me. I don't want to have to go through this, but that's why I came. This is the purpose. So the purpose, reverting back to the purpose, pushed him through the problem to making the decision to God's affirmation. But it has to start with purpose. And then we'll do this one, and I think this will be the last one we'll do. Align your desires with God through prayer. Notice I didn't say ask for your desires from God through prayer. Align your desires with God through prayer. Align your behaviors with God through belief. And align your heart with God, this is so hard, through forgiveness. Then you will be able to ask of God in confidence. There's a lot of prerequisites there. 
But if you work through the prerequisites, the rest is easy. And if you stop and think about it, this was why Jesus came. He came to carry out the desires of the Father. He did the behaviors of the Father, and his purpose was to bring the forgiveness of the Father. And that's our goal. That's our target to shoot for. All right, let's stop there. Questions? Comments? Yes, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> that makes it seem even more like a cheap abuse of power, doesn't it? It wasn't the season for figs. So why should it have figs? But if we go back to the purpose and the purposes of us being fruitful, aren't we always supposed to be in season? And what is that, Pat? What is it? Is it someone? Why didn't he choose a tree that was in season all the time? <laughs> well, there'd have been no lesson in that, would there? And, and to be honest with you, we're not in season all the time. Yes, ma'am. That's a good point. She said, could it be that, that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, wasn't really in season for the Messiah that was coming? And, and that's a really good point. Look at Psalm uh, 1, though. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does is prosper. And then when you get into the book of Revelation, it talks about fruits that are always in season, trees that are always in season. And, and, and if we're just talking about fig trees and fruit and being hungry, it's one thing. If we're talking about the purposes of the kingdom and who's supposed to be carrying it out, that changes the story. And, and the whole thing was Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and the question was, who was he? What did he want? Was he going to do this? Was he going to do that? And his purpose was for Jerusalem to be fruitful. And the only way Jerusalem and the rest of us were going to be fruitful is if he was like the grain of wheat that fell to the ground and died and produced fruit. And so most of what we've read this evening has to do, deal with fruitfulness. And uh, you know what? If you're the son of God, the tree can produce fruit whenever it wants to or whenever you want it to. So, and yes, ma'am. So the idea that the tree had leaves on it, so if it had leaves on it, it should at least had figs on it, and even if they were not ripe, but there was no figs. So it was not producing fruit, period. 
ripe or otherwise. So it says a fig tree that's kept its leaves through the winter will often have fruit on it. Okay. Yes. I think maybe it's just meant to be a major compromise. Here I am, I've raised Lazarus from the, from the dead. I've cursed a fig tree and it's died. Yeah. Raises a guy, kills a tree. Well, and remember, the, a lot of the theme of what we've been going through is the difference between those who are pursuing Jesus and those are who are rejecting him. And so you have those two symbols, if you will. You have all these people that are following after him, and you have the religious leaders who should know better rejecting him. And this is what the, parable, what the, the event of the fig tree is all about. It's about a failure to receive and be fruitful. And, and so don't get too hung up in, in the magic trick of the tree because the tree was just an object lesson to teach us something different. Someone else? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, for me, all too often I am like the fig tree. I look really good on the outside, but I'm not producing what you what it might look like I should be producing. Uh, and no one knows that except the Father a lot of times. Uh, but man, does he know it. All right, we need to go. Three minutes over. Let me pray for us. Get us out of here. Father, thank you for these lessons this evening. Please do not let them fall on deaf ears or mute lips or impotent limbs. Father, please let what we hear change us, change our desires, change our behaviors, change our thoughts about other people. James said that that to hear the word and to not do it is like looking into a mirror and then forgetting who we are. The purpose of the word is not to hear it. The purpose of the word is to do it. So show us, once again, this week, somewhere, somehow, in some way, how to practice what we've heard. And bowl us over with that so that we can't miss it. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.